Well, good morning. Welcome to La Jolla Community Church. Thanks for joining us for worship today. If you're able, let's all stand and let's sing. Take our failure, you take our weakness, you set your treasure in jars of clay, so take this heart, Lord, I'll be
my song to rise to you. When temptation comes my way, and when I cannot stand, I'll fall on you. Jesus, you're my hope and stay. When I cannot stand, I'll fall on you. Jesus, you're my hope and stay. Please join me in our prayers. Dear Father, thanks for giving us the storm and the rain. The rainy season did cause a lot of troubles in our life, but it also reminds us the blessing and the hope that you give us. Relief from the drought, the rainbow afterwards, and the upcoming flower blooming in the, de in the desert in the upcoming spring. In the meantime, the economy is now in a downtime. A lot of people lost their jobs or are still looking for one. And please let us be the force to support the people nearby us. Let the downturn be a chance for everyone to grow and get closer to you. That Steve, uh, that Steve delivers the message, deliver the, uh, the message you want us to pay attention to and learn. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. Well, good morning. Uh, welcome to La Jolla Community Church. Thanks so much for joining us for worship today. Glad to see you guys here. Um, uh, quick reminder, on your way inside, you should have received a bulletin. Um, on that bulletin, we have uh, two cards, a prayer card and a connect card. Uh, the connect card says, get connected with us. It's great, um, especially if you are joining us for the first time today or if you changed addresses and need to update your uh, address. Um, it helps us uh, get in touch and stay in touch. It's also a great way to uh, stay updated with events at the church and ways that you can get involved. Um, also, on the opposite side, we have a prayer card. Let us pray for you. Um, please take a moment and uh, fill out that prayer car card and uh, let us know how our prayer team can pray with you over the week. Um, after the service, you can drop off these cards along with any tithes or offerings in the baskets in the foyer. And at this time, I'd like to invite Pastor Steve. Thank you. Well, if you are here because uh, you have nowhere else to go, you're, supre you're supremely blessed. Uh, if you feel like you do not have a friend in the world, you are supremely blessed. If your body is falling apart, you are supremely blessed. If you just got fired from a job, lost a job, uh, don't have a job, uh, you are supremely blessed. If somebody you love just died, you, you get the idea? Uh, whatever status you bring with you today, uh, the most outrageous included, you are supremely blessed. This is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard, um, but it's the Word of God, and so it means that I have to lean in and say, how could I be supremely blessed if my world isn't perfect in every way? And so this is what the Beatitudes are. The word Beatitude simply means supremely blessed. Um, if any old French speakers here 
not old, but French speakers, but ancient French. Uh, this is a word, beatitude. It's an ancient French word. It comes from the Latin beatus. Uh, the equivalent in Greek is uh, makarios, uh, makarioi, blessed are you, know, you all. Uh, in Hebrew, it would be um, something I'm sure in Hebrew. Um, no, it's baruch. Baruch atar anai elohenu melech haolam. Blessed be the Lord and King of the universe. Uh, so every major blessing in the Hebrew tradition is, uh, every major prayer and blessing starts with the word blessing. Uh, the Greeks picked this up. Uh, if you hear the name Makarios, every time there's a patriarch in the Greek church, they're named Makarios because they are the blessed and they're to be a blessing. And so this idea of the Beatitudes is not happy language, it's irrelevant to real life. It's the content, the core of God coming into the world and telling us uh, who he is, what he's about, and what it's like to live in his kingdom. This is how outrageous and ridiculous it is to the mind who says, if I can't see it, if I can't understand it, it does not matter to me. It's completely irrelevant and non-essential. So this is the, the conflict, I guess, and the, and the context in which people say, I believe in Jesus, I'm wanting to walk with Jesus, I'm putting my hope and trust in Jesus, and waiting for the people around them to say, yeah, but... You're this, and you're not that, and this is what you're going through, and if your God is so great, why is he allowing this to happen in you? And, oh, you're a great Christian, a follower of Jesus. How come you're so depressed? Why are you so this, or why are you not that? And it gets overwhelming because you realize, how do I possibly explain uh, what it means to be in the kingdom of God? And you can imagine Jesus gathering people together on a, on a mountainside, and if you've been to Israel, you can see the places, or particularly the place you think this is where it happened, and all these people showing up. And he starts every one of these eight beatitudes with that word. Uh, blessed are you if, if, if. Oh, you're, you, you're suffering spiritual poverty? Blessed are you, uh, for, for heaven is yours. Oh, you're going through mourning and loss, you're brokenhearted. Well, blessed are you, for you'll be comforted. Uh, now we're talking this week, it just gets deeper and worse. Every, every, it, you keep reading, you think, oh my gosh, how bad can it get? Well, what God is doing is saying, this is the world you live in. This is what my kingdom is about. This is where you are. This is who I am. And this is what happens when it all comes together. All of a sudden, uh, it's an upside-down way of seeing the world, but it's truly the right way, the right-sized, the right-side-up way of seeing reality. And because everybody around us sees it the same way, when somebody comes into the world, i.e. God himself comes into the world and starts talking, we say, either this is brilliant or really bad. And you'll see as you read the New Testament how people came to both of those conclusions. Uh, so here we are. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Should I just stop now and sit down? Uh, I, I don't think if, if you were stopped on the street and they were doing a survey, they said, listen, on, on, on what level, 1 to 10, would you describe your meekness? You'd probably be offended by the question. What do you mean meek? Why did you pick me? <laughs> well, you know... Uh, we had a little toy poodle, and I, I got to confess this. We had a toy poodle, and I grew up in a family who always had big dogs. And now the girls wanted a dog, so we get a little toy poodle. We're thinking, what's the smallest dog we can get uh, that's portable? And so I, it was so awkward for me to walk the dog. <laughs> I you know. I mean, this is bad. Okay, stereotype, right? I'm just walking this little poodle, and that's why I didn't walk the poodle very much. Uh, plus, the poodle wouldn't go for a walk with me because I would just want to walk, and it would end up being a drag. And, 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 you know, the girls or Janet would stop every five seconds and let him you know, investigate the world. But the idea was walking along with a poodle. I, I felt like I needed a, a sign. I'm not meek. <laughs> it's not my poodle. <laughs> I'm doing somebody a big favor uh, walking this dog. Uh, so blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Who wants to be meek? You know, there's only one person in the Old Testament who's called meek. Moses. He's a category of one. There's only one person who represents himself in the New Testament as meek. It's Jesus. He says, come to me, learn from me, for I am meek. Really? What am I going to learn? <laughs> uh, what am I going to learn from you? And I'm not mocking it, obviously. I believe this. I'm just saying it's so mockable in the world in which we live. And so let's just jump in and try to understand what's going on here. We always like to get the context, uh, what, what the setting is, so that we can understand, well, then what is this message that comes out of it? 
And that process is not reading into the Bible a message. And, and if you ever hear people say, well, you know the Bible, you can make the Bible say whatever you want. Right, of course. Uh, but it's not the Bible then. <laughs> it's what you're making it say. Uh, there was a fellow named Cardinal Richelieu, uh, Louis the Sun King, most powerful king in Europe at the time, hired this religious guy, a cardinal, because he was able to twist everybody's words and make it work for Louis. And his famous saying was, give me seven words spoken by any honest man and I can convict him. Perhaps you've dated people like this or have worked with people like this and everything is twisted and turned and you think, that's not what I said. Uh, sometimes this is what, what makes for a great novel. Somebody's in a situation where they're in this world that's almost surreal. And you think, how could that person have twisted it that way? Uh, I won't go into There's so many literary examples of this, uh, but you probably can think of your own. So Jesus is here speaking uh, to three groups of people, essentially. Uh, those who lack worldly wealth, power, and security. Uh, I'm guessing this is the largest group of people who gather to hear him speak. Those who lacked uh, worldly wealth, worldly power, and worldly security. And we're going to impact this. But again, we want to look at the context so that we don't do eisegesis, reading into it. We want to read out of it what the message actually is. And this is why it takes a bit of discipline and patience and time to do this. And the people who say, I can read anything into it that I want, you're not taking the time to understand the text on its own terms. You probably read the newspaper that way. You listen to every news report that way. You take everything and twist it into your own little tiny worldview and framework. And therefore, it's a distorted, uh, defective message. So here's Jesus speaking to these three groups of people. The first who lack worldly wealth, power, and security. So the second group, those who are striving for it, I'm on my way to getting it, or maybe my kids or grandkids will get it someday. And then the final group is those who have it. Uh, which group would you have been in? If you had shown up at this massive event and you were going to hear Jesus speak, and he's talking about these Beatitudes. Now, it didn't happen at one time. The Beatitudes were a series of teachings, but we, it's all captured together in, as, as the Sermon on the Mount. And so whether it happened over a series of days or, or one long day, uh, it, it probably was a process. And so really the entire gospel of Matthew, in which we find these Beatitudes, is, is, a, is the unpacking of the Beatitudes. Because by the time you get to Matthew 25, he's separating sheep and goats. Whatever you did for me, for those you did for me, whatever you didn't do, you didn't do it for me. This is where the Beatitudes go. They're super practical and functional. Right now they feel a bit esoteric and that we're getting these contradictory kinds of things thrown out to us that upset our understanding of the world. And so he's speaking to these three people. Those who had worldly wealth, power, and security, those who were striving for it, those who don't have it yet, uh, those, excuse me, those who have it in full. Which group would you be in? And what do you think the response was from the crowd when Jesus said, oh, by the way, uh, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. They're the only one in the will. They're the one that everything goes to. And what would be the response to this? Uh, I, nods of agreement? Disagreement? <laughs> scorn, scorn on their face? Really? Uh, smirking? Right. Smiling? Yes, that's what I've been hoping for. Were people cheering? Were people jeering? Was there a super awkward silence? Blessed are those who are meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Crickets. Or did he get feedback from the crowd? You ever think about this stuff? Because we tend to think of, you know, Jesus said everybody's going, right, march. I'm thinking he said it, people are saying, what was that? Did people look around wondering who he's speaking to? That can't be for me. I'm guessing only one group was listening with genuine enthusiasm. And it was not the group that had everything. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm on my way to, I've inherited a lot of the earth already, so what is he saying here? So I'm guessing the strivers and the arrivers, you know, the ones who already had it, were saying, this really can't be true. Remember, uh, at one point, a rich guy comes up to Jesus, and he says, hey, I've kept all the laws. Right, sure you have, of course you have. Uh, what else do I need to do? And Jesus says, well, do this, come follow me. And... He said, oh, this is too much, and he walks away. And he said, Jesus was sad for him. And his, his disciples were shocked at, at what Jesus had called the guy to do. And then was, they were just, how do we put this team together? 
And Jesus said, hey, you know, it's easier for um, a rich man. It's as hard for a rich man to get, reach, uh, to get into the kingdom of heaven as it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And then what did they say? They spoke out of their cultural experience. Then who gets in? Who could possibly qualify? Because the rich are the people who are baruch, makarioi, beatific. They're the ones that are supremely blessed. You do a poll in this country, who is supremely blessed? They're rich, they're beautiful, they're healthy, they're well-educated, they've got connections galore. You know, everybody, everybody knows them. Those are the supremely blessed in our culture. And we're either striving to get that, or we've gotten some part of it where this is good for me. I got mine. I used to work for a guy when I was in college, and he was a character. But he would say, look, man, I just want one to five. You can have six to 100. And me and this guy, to this day, if we're talking, we go, I just, I just want one to five. We'll both start laughing. Because that was his way of saying, I want my chunk of every good thing. I'm taking one to five, and you can have six to 100. And his one to five was pretty much 80% in his mind. I want most of it. So who is the most responsive? I'm guessing the group that was listening with genuine enthusiasm were the people in the first group. I have no worldly wealth, power, influence, security. When somebody in my family dies, I'm not comforted because we've just lost a, a laborer or a wage earner. Which group was the meekest from the weakest to the, to the elitist? Uh, and there's, of course, dangers in every group. We'll talk about that in a moment. How would this message have gone down with the crowd in, in Washington, D.C. this week? or in Davos this week, or at your house this week. <laughs> Can you imagine this, the response that somebody had stood up at Davos? The epicenter of wealth and power in our world is gathered in Davos, much to the chagrin of everybody who lives there, except for they get to rent their house to go on vacation somewhere during this crazy thing. And somebody stood up and said, hey, big breakthrough, just want to let you all know, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. It would have been a, people would have started to laugh. They would literally start laughing. That's very funny. Because there's nobody here who fits that category. And we own everything. We tell governments what to do. So let's, let's unpack this, uh, starting with this first idea. How should we understand the word meek in this context in our own setting? Because you, and I know, the word meek sounds like weak. It sounds insubstantial and not necessarily very attractive. I've never... Um, if, I've never been in an athletic uh, setting, a gym, a workout room that said, blessed are the meek. I, I one time did a tour of, of the SEAL training center. Um, it was so incredibly impressive. The only easy day was yesterday, signs like that. And we're looking at all these gizmos, these, these weapons and stuff, and... and uh, the guy who's giving us the tour, the senior officer in the, in the SEAL says, hey, would you like to see our small arms unit? You know, like, you know, smaller guns. And I thought, yeah, I'd love to. So he walks me over to this building, and it says small arms. And you walk into gym. I'm going, why'd you lead me over here? You know, <laughs> I love that. It didn't say, blessed are the meek. It said, man, if you come, if you want to get rid of those small arms, you come here and get, you know, get, get big. How should we understand the word meek in this context? Well, Jesus is a Jew speaking to Jews. Matthew was a Jew writing to Jews. What language was Jesus speaking in? Because we know that the text we have is written in Greek. Matthew is writing to us in Koine Greek, which was the common language uh, everywhere uh, people <laughs> lived in, in that time, pretty much. Because when Alexander the Great left Greece, and he's on this 10-year binge of conquering everybody everywhere, he goes east. He goes, uh, you know, to he, he, to Eastern Europe. He goes to where Syria. He, he's in he's in Egypt. When he died, five different kingdoms arose out of that. You've heard of the Ptolemies in Egypt. Those are people who are inheritors of, of that kingdom. All these people with all their own languages spoke Koine Greek, and so it made sense. Now that you have the Roman Empire distributing information everywhere. They were the internet. You write anything in Koine Greek and send it out. People all over the Roman Empire can read it. Yet all the people in Palestine, in, in Israel, spoke Aramaic, a holdover from the Persian Empire, from Aram. So if you were going to raise your kids in Hebrew, 
you'd, serve, you'd use Hebrew in the temple. You'd use Hebrew in religious writings. But you'd, you'd raise up your child to call God Abba, Daddy, Aramaic. So Jesus spoke Aramaic. Probably Matthew spoke Aramaic. Probably all understood Koine Greek and used Hebrew as they needed to. So what language was Jesus speaking in? Well, I think the answer uh, is that all of them. Even if he was speaking in Aramaic, or if he used Hebrew words, or, or there was some Koine thrown in there, the layers of meaning were powerful. So the layers of meaning we find in the word meek don't fit easily in our English word meek, is where I'm going with this. It's not that I'm reading into something. I'm saying, when you see the level of language coming out of this, uh, you go, wow, this is a profound thing he's saying. All these words that he's using mean something significant. So in this Greek notion, meek, uh, preuse, is, is strength under control. Having strength and using it wisely. Not overreacting. It's a powerful word. You can, you can say, well, that becomes then a strong person who's kind and gentle, humble, considerate. It's really good, great word. That's kind of the Greek layer of it. But if you push back and say, well, Matthew, uh, when he talks about Jesus coming into Israel at the final week of his life on a donkey, we call it you know, um, Palm Sunday, he, just, he quotes Zechariah 9.9. He says, and your king comes to you, humble, humble. Uh, on a donkey, he uses this word preuse, but he's quoting from the Old Testament, and the Old Testament word is ani. So also when we say, well, the word preuse is the word we see in you know, uh, Matthew 21, 5, right, but if you look at the Hebrew he's quoting, it's this other word ani. So that's what I mean by layers. He takes us somewhere. And what does that word ani mean? It means humble and lowly. It's both a character trait and a socioeconomic status. So when he's talking to the poor, he's not saying the figurative poor, because you might be driving a Rolls Royce and say, I'm just poor of spirit. I need to go to church more. I need to read the Bible more. That's true. But you can't say this is the poor that Jesus, that Jesus was speaking about. And he's speaking about the poor. And then everybody who would be related to that concept and that reality. And so from this word ani, we get this word anav, and we get this word anavim. Guess what? That first group of people who, who didn't have any power, wealth, security, they were called the anavim. They were the faithful re remnant in Israel. This is a historic... So all of a sudden, we're, we're pulling this thread and realize, oh my gosh, we're seeing a big part of the Old Testament revealed here. All those poor people of the land, the people of the land who were waiting expectantly for the Messiah, they were not giving in to other cultures. They were not worshiping false gods. These were the Anavim. And because they weren't compromising their faith in God, they'd rather be poor than unfaithful, they were the last and the least in the kingdom. Are you following this? So Jesus is looking at his largest group of people and saying, you will inherit the kingdom of heaven. I mean, you'll, enter, you'll, you'll, you'll inherit the earth. Everything belongs to you. Can you imagine it was shocking, scandalous, and maybe offensive to everybody else going, no, 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 no. They're not sophisticated enough, connected enough, resourceful enough. This is ridiculous. See, the Anavim find their treasures in God's kingdom and would rather be poor than fruitful and, and wealthy and, and rather be poor than unfaithful. These are the poor, the brokenhearted, the humble people Jesus is actually speaking to. It's so convenient for us to, to pull the figurative part up and say, this is it. That's part of it. Because what happens, of course, is when Jesus looks up from their eyes into the eyes of all the people everywhere, the other two groups, he keeps his eyes look, looking up, and now he's looking at you. So that's why you might say, well, I'm in the last group. I've arrived. I pretty much have everything. I can't, I can't you know, imagine needing or wanting more stuff than I have or connections. There's people in this room, if you said, I got a problem with the city, they say, oh, call so-and-so. Oh, okay. It happens to me all the time. People will say, hey, do you know this kind of a person? Do you know that kind of person? Well, I'll say, yeah, you can call so-and-so, call so-and-so. Everybody, everybody needs to pay attention to this notion of what it means to be meek. 
Yes, it's humble. Yes, it's gentle. But there's something else going on here. It says, my priority uh, is to focus on the Lord more than me. I think it was, I don't know if it was C.S. Lewis or Tim Keller, somebody, uh, there have been many people credited with it, just saying, you know, the issue in life, uh, in, the, in your walk with God, is not to, to think of yourself, um, to, to think less of yourself, it's to think of yourself less. It's a great way of thinking about things. Don't think less of yourself, don't have an inferiority complex, just think of yourself less. What's the alternative? I can't imagine what I'd be thinking about. How about thinking about God more? And that's where this meekness becomes profoundly deep and rich in terms of the layers of meaning we see in it that the English word cannot deliver. Because the, the word really does sound as an insult to somebody or, or off-putting to somebody. Again, you've got to meet this guy. He'd be perfect for you. Oh, really? Tell me about him. He's meek. Ah, oh, look at that. i got to go. You know. But when you start to understand what this means and you're standing in front of an incredibly powerful person uh, who is kind and gentle, and they're not leading with their stuff, their influence, their power, their bravado, their, their physical size, let's say, their obvious strength, and you see that they're kind and gentle, you're undone by that. You go, whoa, what's going on? Now here's the response to Jesus' teaching. We see this in a few chapters later, in chapter 11. The people said this, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority. What starts out standing, sounding scandalous and naive and off-putting all of a sudden grips their heart, grab, you know, grabs their mind, opens their mind imaginatively to a whole larger perspective than they ever thought possible. The first group is saying, us? The second group is saying, what am I actually striving for? And the third group is saying, what I have, does it really even matter in the larger scheme of things? And if it does matter, what is my obligation and responsibility now to use what's in my hands? When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority, not as their teachers of the law. Uh, we see in Philippians, uh, this great chapter, uh, chapter 2 of Philippians. It's called the kenosis uh, chapter. Kenosis just means emptying. Uh, to, uh, um, and, and Paul says this uh, to the people in Philippi. Don't do anything out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. Wow, sounds like meek. Yes, you have your interests, and you have to be responsible for them, but how about the interests of others? How about your, uh, you're not just your needs, but others' needs? He's talking about, I guess we'd say in a business sense, a win-win. Uh, you, you get to cut the cake, who gets to pick the piece, right? That kind of a thing. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. This is the kenosis. He emptied himself by taking the very nature of a servant. You've heard that term doulos. This is a word they use is translated servant, a voluntary slave. In Jesus' case, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death out on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the ultimate picture of meekness. Does it sound like weakness to you? Of course not. Does it sound off-putting or insulting? No, it sounds inspiring. It's breathtaking. God would do this for me? God who... You know, can call anything into being or destroy anything he wants. This is God's attitude toward us. You want to be like this? Uh, yeah, but it's impossible. But Paul just said, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. I guess meek is really good. It's something to aspire to. 
So this kenosis passage reveals God's glory in Jesus and exposes our attitude toward him. If you're saying, no, this is great and everything, but I'm not buying it. You uh, and Friedrich Nietzsche, on, uh, you know, part of his philosophy was the, the core of how Hitler built his view. Nietzsche didn't mean to influence Hitler necessarily, but he did. He was a, he was a horrible dude in every way. Um, and he mocked Jesus' meekness. He said, this is a slave morality. Like the Jewish people he comes from. Think about that. It's a slave morality. What Nietzsche valued most of all, of course, what the Nazi regime did, was prideful power. We don't need to reason with you. We'll simply destroy you if you don't agree with us. The opposite, complete opposite of meekness. Now, in our culture, where 90% of the people report as being Christians, the functional approach is not anything like Philippians 2. It's really more like pride and power. In fact, I have pride in my power. And I have power that fuels my pride. And so Nietzsche and we easily misread Jesus' kindness as weakness. His humility as weakness. His meekness as being uh, not hip to how the world really works. But yeah, that's not how it works in my company. Second point then, if that's how we understand the word meek, why then did Jesus give this beatitude? Knowing that there'd be immediate pushback on this. And the only people who would really enthusiastically respond were the wrong people. The people who didn't really matter, because we can tell them what to do. These were the people, if somebody said, hey, all of you leaders in, in Israel, have you, have you gotten the opinion of the Anhavim about this? Whatever you're going to do. They'd say, uh, if we want the opinion of the Anhavim, we will give it to them. You see how that works? So why did Jesus give this bad attitude? That's the second big idea. Well, he's revealing something about God's image in us and how essential it is that we embrace it. If we reject this or, or minimize this, we are rejecting and minimizing the very presence of God in our life. The very powerful purpose of God in the world. You're putting yourself, we are putting ourselves on the wrong side, as they, as they say, of history. Because this, this history will end at some point. Time and space are a created construct by God. Time and space don't exist where God exists as defining things. They're simply how God created the world, time and space. There's something beyond time and space. That's why right back to you right now, modern physics is fascinating because it's saying multiple worlds, you know, string theory, all these different ways of saying this, there's more to it than this. We just don't know what it is. We don't understand this that well, but there's more to it than this. So he's, Jesus is revealing something about God's image in us and how essential it is that we embrace it. Meekness is essential and core to that. And so meekness is really about thriving under God's kingdom, not striving to establish our own. We're not spending a lot of energy trying to audit out what we don't like about God's kingdom and edit out. Auditing in the sense of this is not that valuable. Editing, this can't be true, meaningful. I hear we can't depend on this. And we become, we, be, we create a Thomas Jefferson Bible. It's like a pamphlet. Thomas Jefferson was a deist. He said, I don't like all the stuff that doesn't fit my worldview and my kingdom. And so he, he excised out most of the New Testament. It's a very thin Thomas Jefferson Bible. Super convenient. You put it in your pocket. You know, slip it under a door. So this idea of meekness then is thriving under God's kingdom, not establishing uh, striving to establish your own. It isn't lacking in confidence or being a weak and passive person. It's not just sitting around all day waiting for stuff to happen. It's being confident and content in Christ. Again, not content as in you're just kicking back and I'm fine with everything falling apart. But I understand who God is and what his kingdom's about. Therefore, I have confidence in him and I'm content that he knows what's best for me. And so in all my creative endeavors, and all those great adventures I take on, and all those things that I, I get curious about and I pursue, what, what forms and shapes that is the content of the kingdom of God and the confidence I have in it that then allows me to be content and not just push it away and say it's meaningless. Bonhoeffer addressed this in this book, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, during the Nazi regime, addressed this in Life Together. Brilliant book, an underground community of people trying to hold it together in Jesus' name. But he said, you know what, um, 
the danger in what we're doing is that we're going to idealize a utopian, Christian utopian community. Because we're going to look really awesome compared to the Nazi regime. But you know what? If we create our own little community, it's idolatry. We've got to wait on the Lord and say, what does your community look like? And what does it mean to be pulled into the koinonia of your Holy Spirit-shaped community? And so it's not being an idealistic, idolatrous, let's, get a, let's make a better church. It's saying, let's learn from God what it means to be in his community. And so this is a, the divine reality of community, not the human ideal of community. You follow that? So the program now is, well, you guys need to work harder being meek. That's not it. It's how about if we, again, pay more attention to the Lord and his work in us. And all of a sudden, meekness becomes a defining and describing characteristic of who we are. So being meek, then, is simply being generally open to the Holy Spirit and to people in an attitude of love. Love makes us vulnerable. Love requires that we become humble. You can't force it. And so Jesus personifies the transforming power of humility and vulnerability that gives him credibility. Part of what they got from his incredible teaching wasn't that it was bombastic, and we're going to take this place apart. It was the humility and vulnerability, what are you saying? Wait, wait, you said, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are meek. That's humble and vulnerable. You know the Romans won't really be big on that, Jesus. You understand that, right? Right. Uh, the grave won't be big on that either, but we, that'll, that'll work out in ways you will not quite understand yet. The, the resurrection of Jesus crushes sin, crushes death, crushes any human power and authority. That's why Paul could say, God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven, on earth, under the earth, nowhere you can go where it's not <laughs> his authority. Every tongue will acknowledge that Jesus is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Uh, the Romans, I don't know. We invite him to join us. So in the Gospels, we see that Jesus was aware that he was God among us, but he wasn't prideful or aloof. His meekness allowed him to be this, this strong presence, but with humility and gentleness, submitted to the Father. Not my will, but yours be done. He was in the world, but not of it. He came into his own, but his own did not recognize him. And in Jesus, we see no conflict or inconsistency in his meekness and his power to bless. His power to be present to Caiaphas or to Herod or to Pilate. He was a non-anxious presence, as psychologists would say. He was fully present, but he was non-anxious. Why? Because he was God. He knew his purpose and he knew his mission. So when Peter, when, he's, when Jesus is being arrested, Peter pulls out a sword and lops off a guy's ear. Jesus says, you know, we could call down legions of angels. That's not what we need right now. What we need right now is obedient faith. Beating these, beating these guys up, <laughs> that's not even a challenge. That's not the purpose of what we're doing here. We don't want to beat these guys up. We want to raise them up so they can be beatific, blessed like you. So he understood his purpose, and he was present to God and people. And so he's a role model for meekness. Uh, the meek live in active gratitude to God. The meek are actively engaged in understanding the character qualities of who God is and who God is in them in spite of their socioeconomic identity. You see, the non-meek want to be God. When people don't have power and, and they're not meek, get it, they misuse it and abuse it. Bad leaders are replaced by bad leaders. I, I saw this in South Africa. You had... You had a, a corrupt regime of white guys being <laughs> replaced eventually by a corrupt regime of black guys. You had one righteous leader in the transition, and after that, the rest of them were just compromising what's in it for me people. And this has been why the, the miracle of that, that conversion has slowed down significantly, because it's what's in it for me. Uh, it, it, it's, it's what you see in every country that is being corrupted including our own. The message becomes not, how do I serve? It's what can serve me. 
And this is what happens when non-meek people get power and control and influence. They start out by saying, just accept me as I am. But once they get power, they say, and this is what you'll do, and if you don't like it, I will destroy you. This is what life is like when you're not meek and you're not part of the kingdom of God. Jesus said, turn the other cheek to those abusing their power. Why? Because it shows moral power. That's why Martin Luther King was amazing. He personified meek but not weak. He was mild, as in not harsh. He was tough, as in resilient, not mean. So do you see where this goes? It's counterintuitive. The most powerful people on the planet are the meek. But you would never really notice their power because they're so busy bringing the best out in you to making you feel more alive when they're around you. They draw you into a better version of yourself without you hardly even realizing it. They make you want to aspire to something different and better. And they don't beat you up into that. They don't coerce you into that. <laughs> they draw you into it by the abiding presence of Christ in them. So meekness is a necessary antidote for the seven things that God hates. Do you understand? I mean, have you heard this? God hates things. He hates seven things. I'll tell, him, I'll tell you what they are out of Proverbs 6. <clears throat> These are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. God hates these things. They're the opposite of meek. They do not accomplish God's purposes. And they don't inherit anything but a kingdom without God in it. And what that would be like, I can only imagine. So here's some practical teaching on biblical meekness from Jesus, Peter, and Paul. Jesus said, uh, Jesus called them to himself, his disciples. He said, you know, the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. They, they control and they subjugate. And their great men exercise authority over them. They, they oppress and bring down people. It is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever, whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's Jesus speaking out of his meekness. Peter said it this way, all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Like I said at the very beginning, are you showing up here today having lost your job, having lost a loved one, having been told something by your doctor that makes you just rattled? You think, oh no. Or maybe the economy is undoing what you thought would be how you're going to live for the next 20 years or 30 years. Cast all your anxiety on him. Why? Because he cares for you. This is what meekness does. Here's Paul's take on it. Submit to one another out of your common reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as you do to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Parents, don't exasperate your children. That's what meekness looks like. Final point, if the first is how should we understand this word, the second is why did Jesus give this beatitude, the third point is this, what is wrong with the world that makes fulfilling these inspiring passages so difficult? <laughs> That's my, my final thing, guys. I was overwhelmed by all this this week, just going, I don't know, you know, I'm going to call in sick. <laughs> I, I, the last thing that hit me was, well, what's wrong with the world that makes fulfilling these inspiring passages so difficult? I agree with all of it, but it just seems impossible to do. Why? Why are relationships so complicated, so conflicted, so crazy-making? Uh, I ask you, can you answer that? Can you answer the question if somebody asked you, why are relationships so complicated, conflicted, crazy-making? 125 years ago, in 1908, uh, the Times of London asked G.K. Chesterton, one of the most influential men of the day, uh, if you haven't read anything about Chesterton, you're missing out big time, he was an, an incredible, amazing influence for Christ. He was a Catholic Christian, brilliant writer. He wrote Father Brown. He wrote 
you know, brilliant things about the kingdom of God. He was just amazing all the way around. So he was one of the go-to pundits in the British Empire at the height of their empire. And so the Times of Loveness says, let's ask the smartest guy we know, G.K. Chesterton, to tell us what's wrong with the world. And so they said, uh, uh, Mr. Chesterton, what's wrong with the world? And he replied, dear sirs, I am. Sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. <laughs> I think it's brilliant, don't you think? I am. I am. Wow. Why do the meek inherit the earth? They follow the one who prepares them to care for it. There's no inherent greatness in being poor or even trying to be gentle and kind. The greatness is you're learning from Jesus how to be you and be fully alive in his kingdom. The meek inherit the earth because they're the only ones qualified to inherit it. And so Jesus is preparing them, them being all three groups that showed up at the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is calling each one of us to be his partners in caring for the world that he died for. I'm not qualified. Right, of course not. That's why he's preparing you. Get in gear, get engaged. Jump in right now, wherever you are. Not too soon, not too late. Let me ask you this question. Would you prefer to be what's right with the world or what's wrong with it? If the, if the Times of London had followed up with Chesterton and said, okay, okay, that's very clever, brilliant, I know, I am. Are there any things you want to add to that? And I'm sure he would have said, well, I'm the problem, but here's the, the beautiful thing. Jesus is the answer. And he's turning me from being a problem into being a full participant and partner in his work in the world. And therefore, I have hope. So how we answer this question will determine which world we will inherit, God's or ours. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth that Jesus is preparing them for. We all get to be part of that. So Lord Jesus, I thank you for that. On behalf of my brothers and sisters here, I thank you that we get to be part of this moving and a remarkable thing that you're doing to create a new heaven and a new earth. We thank you, Lord, for the overwhelming honor of being part of that. And so, Lord, we want to embrace this reality of being meek, humble, gentle, kind, uh, strong, and self-controlled in a way that would allow us to be free to live fully, one day at a time, now and forever, in your holy name. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, time for an offering, that means it's time for us to offer ourselves to God. Uh, uh, as, far, as far as giving uh, resources goes, you can give to this church in any number of ways. You can, there's a little box you can put money in today. You can send money in, uh, all kinds of creative ways to, to support the church. Right now, though, this offering is about you offering you to Jesus. Well, I believe in him already. Yeah, that's why you're offering him today. Where are you today offering yourself wherever you are? Maybe you've been far from Jesus and you're now coming back home to him. Maybe you don't know him. And it's all new to you. Well, then start by offering yourself and saying, Lord, lead me, guide me, help me understand you. Whatever it is, let's offer him, let's offer ourselves to him as we worship him. And I'll come back for a blessing, a benediction. Okay.
Death has lost its grip on me. You have broken every chain. There's salvation in your name, Jesus Christ, my living hope. Jesus Christ, my living hope. Oh, God, you are my living breathtaking, isn't it, when you think about it? He did that for us, and he's doing that for us. And it goes somewhere, and it goes somewhere good, and it works right now, and it comes in its fullest completion um, when he returns again in glory. In the meantime, he's with us through his Holy Spirit. Take every opportunity to live as fully as you can, knowing that it's in him that you will thrive, and it's in him that you bring the hope of God's kingdom wherever you go. If we can pray for you about anything that concerns you or anybody you care about, uh, go right up uh, around the corner to the beautiful prayer garden, and there'll be someone to pray with you. It just takes a second, and uh, it's powerful. Uh, meanwhile, uh, get something to eat, hang out. I would love to get to know you. Anything we can do to help you take that next step in your faith, whatever that is, we'd love to do. So now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord who loves you more than you can even ask or imagine give you everything you need to walk in newness and fullness of life with him, both now and forevermore. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.